0: Radio Bio is adhering to COVID-19 shelter-in-place orders, and we are committed to producing fun and educational podcasts for your enjoyment. Please excuse the difference in the audio quality of our post-production while we use online tools to safely work from home. We appreciate you tuning in.
1: Achoo! Ah, allergies. The first sign of spring or also a sign that the barista accidentally did make your coffee with whole milk instead of soy but what is your body doing during an immune response particularly an allergy immune response and why are your cells causing you so much misery? well join us this week as we dive into the fascinating roles that our immune system plays during allergic responses with Dr. Richard Loxley
2: Don't know much bye.
3: Hello, and welcome to Radio Bio. I am your host, Anne Deep,
0: And I'm your host, Julia Alvarez. Today we have with us Dr. Richard Loxley, a Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator from UCSF. Welcome.
2: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: So broadly speaking, what is your research topic?
2: Um, It's broadly speaking, to be perfectly honest with you. (laughs) Um, But I've been, been interested for a long time in the role of allergy in the spectrum of what we call immunity and why we have that. In that, in contrast to many things we think of when we think about immunity and vaccines and shots and protection from infectious disease, allergy seems to be designed to torture us. Mm-hmm. And it's not implicitly clear to me why we should have evolved such a, a response. And that is always intrigued me.
0: So could you tell us and our listeners how we develop allergies? What, what is that actual reaction that's happening in our bodies and how, why do we get allergies?
2: I think um, most of what one thinks of as allergy, like food allergies and uh, allergies to uh, drugs or sensitizations or a, a lot of atopic allergies, are related to IgE antibodies and binding to mast cells, and they degranulate in the most severe form being anaphylaxis when people go into shock.
1: When IgE antibodies on the surface of mast cells touches an allergen, this causes the mast cell to degranulate or release its contents, histamines. Histamines cause the allergy symptoms we all know and love.
2: I think on top of that are all of the allergic diseases like asthma, atopic dermatitis, that are typically diseases of childhood that have become very prevalent in the world nowadays and have spawned a lot of intrigue because of the increase in prevalence having occurred much more quickly than could be accounted for by genes. So this these can't possibly only be explained by genetic peculiarities. Um, this is something about the way we have outrun our genetic makeup, the way we develop, the, the way we're, we differentiate in a modern world in ways that we're reacting to otherwise benign things in pernicious ways.
3: So uh, while we're on the topic of that, and I was beautiful explanation. What are some misconceptions that you commonly hear about how the public talks about allergies versus how you as a researcher understands allergy?
2: When I was in school, I went through a period of about fourth grade to sixth grade where I wasn't a particularly imaginative kid. and every day I made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and a orange. I took to lunch every day for almost three years to the consternation of my parents, but they let me do that. <laughs> By the time my two twin daughters went to school, peanut butter was outlawed. So this is way past genomes, right? This is in one generation, it's been outlawed. Now, part of the outlawing is for good reason, that food allergy to peanuts has become quite common, and people who have severe allergy to peanuts can get anaphylaxis, have a severe reaction, and and rarely, but horribly, uh, die um, with exposure. But what has permeated some of the school systems is that if you're sitting across the room someone eating a peanut butter sandwich, you will collapse in anaphylaxis, which won't happen. But of course, what does happen is kids share a peanut, peanut butter cookie or a peanut butter cracker or who knows what, and, and so stuff happens. And the schools are kind of left having to, to throw down the gauntlet and just say, we, we, need, we just need to protect everybody and eat your peanuts at home or whatever it might be. And that's fine, but um, I've always felt that not educating people about what the risk is causes mischief. So I'd I'd like to see a more um, scientifically transparent explanations, um, but society doesn't always have time for that.
0: So how much of this do you think accounts to the exposure to these things when we're young? and how it relates to developing these allergies. Because I've heard that um, they outlawed peanuts and then that actually resulted in more peanut allergies because young children weren't being exposed to the peanuts.
2: Yeah, so there was a, fa- f- a famous trial, or giving famous trial, I think it's called the LEAP trial, in uh, parts of Canada and the upper United States, involving early exposure to peanuts. And... The idea of this trial was like an earlier trial that was involved in exposure of children to dust and house dust mites and allergens like fungi in the environment. And that trial involved very extensive covering of mattresses in the room with plastic, vacuuming your room four times a day versus control, letting whoever did what, you know, do what. And the peanut trial involved starting kids early on exposure to peanuts, really driven by studies in, or almost hearsay, but as well as studies in Israel, where, where kids were, uh, their teething was, was treated therapeutically by rubbing peanut oils on their gums, called bamba. And peanut allergy was just unheard of in, in Israel. And so they started this trial, and sure enough, both in the asthma trial, which involved all the cleaning up your room and plastic coating everything, and in the the LEAP trial, which was the peanut exposure, the people exposed earlier, those people were more protected than the people who were kept super hygienic. And so the idea is that there are likely to be developmental windows
0: What Dr. Loxley tells us about the study of peanut exposure shows us how malleable our immune systems are at early life. It highlights the important aspect of exposure during this quote-unquote developmental window where we shift from relying on the immune protection we were seeded with during gestation and possibly through breast milk to our own immune systems taking the wheel and learning how to protect us on our own. And there is a lot for our immune system to learn about what is a threat versus what is not a threat. He mentions that it's likely that this developmental window can be skewed by the things we are and are not exposed to. Many believe that this exposure or lack of exposure is what leads to a lot of allergies later on in life.
2: At which you tolerate yourself around the time when you become a self-living entity. So you're relying on mom for everything, and the next thing you know, you're out in the world all all by yourself. And now you're going to be exposed to everything from your microbiome to the good guys to dietary things that we don't want to react to. You want to be tolerant to those things, just like you want to be tolerant to new antigens in the developing body as you enlarge and grow and grow and express things that aren't expressed embryologically. Think of... rods and cones in the back of your eye that never have seen light until the day they turn on and begin to function and express things and do things. So the developmental window post-birth is huge and it's clearly a lot different than the way it was when our genes evolved. And I suspect that a lot of allergy and asthma that arises in childhood is reflecting a differentiative window that has been altered uh, rates of exposure from um, from the environment, from food, from the way we're exposed to things we never evolved to see, like plastics. No, Nowhere in our genome did we ever evolve to see plastic. And I'm here drinking water out of a plastic bottle, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure there's probably some plastic in the liquid.
3: That's, that's great. Well, um, just to shift gears back towards research a little bit we talked about all these really great theories and observations that have led to these trial experiments to examine the root of allergies. So I wanted to ask you, what are some of the techniques involved in your field of research? And if you'd like to share any of your particular favorite ones, whether you're, they're your favorites to do in the lab or they're your favorites to like um, see data and results from?
2: I think um, just considering the circuitous route by which I even got interested in asthma is, is something to think about as, as we think about how this field has gone. Um, I, I started working when I was uh, a postdoc at the University of Washington in a laboratory that was looking at the way certain intracellular organisms were killed. And an unknown reviewer at that time, when the first manuscript came back, which showed that interferon gamma, which is activating cytokine that makes macrophages cytosidal and kill this thing.
0: Interferon gamma is a cell signaling molecule that alerts immune systems of certain infections, for example, viral infections.
2: Um, Kill this thing in a certain compartment of the cell uh, but they wondered if there were other organisms that might be in different compartments of the cell that might be treated differently. And they suggested that I look at an organism that was contained in a lysosomal granule. It was different than the, where this other organism was. That was lushmanium. I knew nothing about it. I started reading about Leishmania. What was interesting about it is this particular parasite had these very genetically oriented outcomes in mice, where some strains of mice would turn over and die with very few organisms, and other strains of mice would completely heal the lesion and would be immune to reinfection. And I started to get very intrigued by these outcomes because it was becoming very clear that it was the immune response talking to to the macrophage that was setting up the tone. And there was something that seemed to be wrong with the, aberrant about the immune restra- response in these strains of mice. So, using different approaches, we could show that that one that the helper T cells in one strain of mice were protective, and the other they were detrimental.
0: T cells, which you can learn all about in our episode with Dr. Ellen Rothenberg, are immune cells that can be specialized to fight various infections.
2: And it was driving us crazy at the time because the protective ones clearly made this interferon gamma response that looked like it did the right thing. And the other one, we were beginning to probe for what it made. And around that time, a group at DNAX, which is a biotech firm, had been studying a bunch of T-cell clones out of their freezer. And they had a bunch of probes to look at what these clones made. And they found there was two types T-cells, or what became to be known as Th1 cells and Th2 cells, and they could use these various probes and that identified the second clone. And in no time at all, I could figure that this outcome was due to these two outcomes in mice. So at that point, I, everything kind of went sideways, and the whole kind of field of cytokine biology became consumed with how T-cells work and what they do. And that's where the allergy thing began to back up because as the allergy locusts began to be explored and what cytokines they make, IL-4 is right front and center in, in this thing. And it became more and more confusing why you would make this T cell that in this strain of mice was so detrimental. And of course that was the T cell that later came to be associated with allergy in both humans and mice. and heavily associated with allergy does. And now major drugs in allergic disease in humans target those cytokines successfully in allergic disease. Um, But I was lucky enough to have a PI that said, why don't you read up on this and, you know, if you're really interested in it, I'll let you do it. His, His lab didn't do any of that stuff. And he let me just pursue it as just a biologically interesting question. And I think what really changed the field was the identification of innate lymphoid cells.
0: ILC2s, or type two innate lymphoid cells, are cells that were discovered to be somewhat similar to T cells and are specialized just like T cells. These specifically have been found to be important for allergy responses.
2: But innate cells don't have those kinds of recognition receptors providing a clue into how the system may have originated to talk with the body through endogenous signals rather than be subverted by external signals. So I think the discovery of innate lymphoid, type two cells are called now, ILC2, really altered the way we think about allergy and asthma. And that really changed the whole direction of our lab and the way we think about allergy and what it does.
0: So on the topic of research and genetic tools, you're very well known for pioneering the first genetically engineered reporter mouse. Could you explain for our listeners what this tool is and how it's useful for not just studying immunology but other fields as well?
2: So one great thing about the mouse system is, one, it's so genetically characterized, and uh, two, that it's been uh, set up in in characterized strains that allow you to control for a lot of other things that we can't control for in outbred populations like humans. The problem with cytokines is that we knew right away that cytokines like IL-2, the different names and the ones like TNF and one's like every name of CSFs, they have names that defy logic. Uh, Even though there's a nomenclature that is official, that's rarely used. And the poor public, of course, can't keep up with these things. But as I indicated earlier, you have to remember that the support of bone marrow transplantation and cancer therapy wouldn't be possible without growth factors to support bone marrow recovery. Those growth factors are cytokines.
1: Cytokines are the messenger molecules of the immune system. They travel all across our bodies and tell our immune cells what to do. Growth factors are specialized messenger molecules that tell various cells to grow and proliferate.
2: So these are the language, the Rosetta Stone of how cells communicate in the body, not only among immune cells, but immune cells to the rest of the body. And when those are disrupted, you get into, you you have lots of problems. The problem with those is that the receptors are very widely expressed on many cells and the cells are only transiently, the, the, the proteins are only transiently made because they have very potent biologic effects. So they're consumed very rapidly, meaning they can be very hard to measure. So we set out some years ago, and we was really Marcus Morrison lab, who came over from Germany. He had been in a lab that was tracing genetic markers in the nervous system where they were really developed to be used. And we kind of altered that to put a fluorescent protein from green jellyfish that was developed by people at at, uh, Columbia, won a Nobel Prize. And that reagent in the mouse could be used to track cells that made the cytokine. That is, the, molecular, the, the, the locus could be targeted with a construct that let the cytokine be made, but was linked to a separately transcribed reporter, a fluorescent protein that would light the cell up like a Christmas tree. And there are a number of different colors that over time have been used by many people. But this really allowed us to see where the cells were, uh, how long they lasted, where they trafficked, and you could begin to put a map on where these things happened and um, what the flavors were. If the flavors were, like we talked about, Th1 and Th2 cells and the third big type now being Th17 cells, you can now flavor these in mice. We have mice in the lab that light up all three in real time, and you can see how how these work. So they've really been useful, not just in immunology, but in any system where you need to follow evanescent proteins that are very potent and rapidly consumed. And that's how biologic systems respond to perturbation. You can't have a very potent biologic around for a long time or you have a lot of problems. So these things are tightly regulated and you need these kind of genetic tricks to mark where they're coming from and how they're made. So I think that's what really drove it in the beginning and and we've used it for a lot of probing these kinds of questions. Been very helpful and we put all our mice at Jack's, you can call up, order your own (laughs) mice. My kids call them up so they glow in the night. You (laughs) know, so uh, yeah.
3: So we always really like asking this question. You, you already gave a great, like, background story to how you got interested in allergy and what led you down this path. But did you always want to be a scientist? And, you know, what piqued that initial interest in immunology for you?
2: So I always wanted to be a scientist. My dad always dragged me to science fairs. and He wasn't a scientist, but he uh, uh, really cared about science. And I always had a really good teacher who was interested in one thing and another and um yeah, for some for some reason I just always liked it. Um Immunology. I got interested in immunology through the work that I did. I always thought I'd be a cardiologist. I had done cardiology research in Boston in summers when I was in college. And I thought it was really cool. It was kind of in the biochemistry age when you were chopping up muscles and seeing how myofibers contracted and pumps that control the contraction of the heart and all that kind of stuff. And it was kind of cool. Somebody we were working on dogs that lost the race, the greyhounds that lost the race. It was kind of gross working on dogs. But as it, as it, as it was, um, when I got to, I went to medical school and I was sure I was gonna be a cardiologist. And I wandered around a cardiologist and I, it kind of became clear to me that this is a muscle and it was electrified and once you kind of understood how it was electrified and how it pumped I was going to kind of run out of being really, really interested. <laughs> so, with all due respect to cardiology, i done tons of things. Now they're rebuilding from ISP, you know, from yeah. stem cell. This is way before any of that. I started thinking, like, I'm going to last about three years and be looking for something to do. And I did an infectious disease rotation. And I was kind of snookered by the, the guy who was the head of infectious disease was a very nappily dressed, educated, smart as heck guy. And the people I had on the team, other residents were really you know energetic guys and gals. And they impressed on me the importance of really figuring things out in infectious disease. You had to figure out, where did they get this? you know. So usually it was some travel, or somebody ate, fell down in the dirt and inhaled you know, Coxie dust or whatever it might be. So you you had to figure out what they did, and two, there was a race of two genomes. It wasn't just that you made an immune response and got better. It was that some people made an immune response and got worse. And now we know a lot of that is genetics, that we used to think infectious disease was a random hit. It's not, you know, it's, you also have to be susceptible. And there are some really bad actors like Ebola and, and whatnot. But I think it was this The two-gene thing got me into infectious diseases. And then in a postdoc, it was the immunology of infectious disease that got me into the immunology part. And then I very quickly realized I was more kind of host-oriented than beating on the pathogen genomes. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm still really interested in the whole darn thing. I find it fascinating.
3: (laughs) Yeah. No, that's like super cool. And I love asking this question because it always ends up happening that we're both like infectious disease um, researchers, yeah. but we both study from the host side as well. So it's always yeah. really nice hearing what other immunologists have I mean, got them it, into it. Yeah, I love the, uh,
2: the pathogen side, but on the host side, we're, we're looking at there's only so many ways to confront this myriad of things. How how could this possibly be? You know, when you really think about, how are we sitting here? You know, how did we ever get here? It's pretty amazing, and we got here without antibiotics. Let's be honest. Maybe, maybe not me, you, or the, you know, I don't know your background, but I probably didn't have a burst appendix. But you know, human beings got here, no antibiotics, none of that stuff. You know, it's man, it took over the world. It's pretty amazing.
0: What is your favorite part about your job?
2: Uh, probably the students and postdocs. Uh, uh, they uh, are so uh, enamored of this stuff. Uh, <laughs> they, they love it. They are always challenging. I'll just say something, you know, well, how do we know that anyway? <laughs> um, they keep you on your toes. Uh, they are fearless. They go after areas of things I wouldn't otherwise explore. And of course, they're networked with all their buddies and they're off talking in other labs about, oh, they're doing all this other cool stuff. Why don't we go do that? Um, yeah, I, I think I've always liked the the teaching and the, the student interaction part. I, I think it's uh, healthy to see the next generation coming along in any walk of life. But I think science mm-hmm. uh, really lends itself to that uh, because of the uh, not only the training aspect, but the ever broadening Knowledge base uh, means that it's upswelling from the bottom as well as coming down from the top. You know, I wish everybody did science at some level or at least was acquainted with science enough to be realize the incredible curiosity that it inspires. Uh, if you can do it, it's a spectacular way to go.
0: So thank you, Dr. Loxley, for being here with us. This has been a great uh, interview. And we've really enjoyed having you here.
2: Really enjoyed it. Thank you both.
0: And as always, this has been Radio Bio, Listen to Life. Next time you feel an itch in your nose at the first hint of springtime, you can thank your hardworking immune cells for trying to protect you from what they think is a life-threatening gust of pollen.
3: This episode of Radio Bio was produced and edited by Yumari Vasquez. The interviewers are Julia Alvarez and Anne Deep. The artwork is by Ann Deep.
0: Radio Bio is produced by graduate students at the University of California, Merced. Support for Radio Bio comes from the Quantitative and Systems Biology Graduate Group, the School of Natural Sciences, and the Graduate Division at UC Merced. You can help support Radio Bio's mission of increasing scientific literacy in California's Central Valley and beyond by donating at giving.ucmerced.edu. Find out more about our mission, events, and podcasts at www.radiobio.net.